Welcome back to the Sharpen Podcast, a podcast aimed at minimizing future outdoor accidents by way of storytelling. Real people sharing real stories. I'm Ashley, the creator and producer of this show. This show is brought to you by Rocky Talkie, who just launched a new initiative to increase usage and awareness of backcountry community channels. These are channels designed for specific backcountry zones and are meant for vital group-to-group communication, like an accident, avalanche, or other hazard. Rocky Talkie has collected all known community channels in the U.S. and organized them by state and area. Check out the growing list of community channels and submit additional channels at rockytalkie.com slash community channels. And don't forget, listeners get 10% off by going to rockytalkie.com slash sharpend. Thank you to the American Alpine Institute for sponsoring this episode. The American Alpine Institute's six-day Alpinism One Introduction to Mountaineering program was designed to help competent backpackers become competent independent mountaineers. Over this program's 49-year history, the curriculum has continued to evolve alongside the evolution of technical mountaineering. The Alpinism One program starts with a day of rock climbing and rappelling, and then moves up onto the flanks of Mount Baker, where students will learn the arts of snow climbing, snow and ice anchors, moderate ice skills, and glacier travel and crevasse rescue. The program culminates in an ascent of a moderate route on Mount Baker. Learn more about the Alpinism One program at alpineinstitute.com. Devin and his co-instructor were instructing a 10-day climbing course in Joshua Tree National Park this past January, just last month. They were on day two of this 10-day course when Devin's trip was cut a little short. I'll let Devin tell you what happened. I hope you enjoy. Uh, My name is Devin Farkas. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I live in Burlington, Vermont. Oh, I love Burlington. Yeah, it's a great place to live um, for uh, lots of reasons. Um, I live here with my dog and my partner and my my son, who is three and a half. I work for one of the universities in the area. Um, I run the outdoor programs where I train at students in outdoor leadership and technical outdoor skills. Uh, group management, um, risk management, all that kind of kind of good stuff. And what's that program called? Uh, it's called Outdoor Programs, outdoor um, programs. In, in the Department of Student Life. Um, I am the one of the assistant directors of Student Life, and the area that I oversee is Outdoor Programs. So my title isn't director, but like for all intents and purposes, like I am the director of outdoor programs. It's just that we're not our own department. And it's like the weird university re- like hierarchy that my title is assistant director, but I'm my, my capacity we is. We know who you are. Yeah, we know, yeah, we know yeah. what you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, we're, we're a team of two. Uh, it's me and my amazing coordinator. And uh, yeah, yeah. So that's that's what I do for work in Burlington. Um, I'm, I'm on your podcast talking to your listeners about work I was doing for a different university. One of the universities I worked for running their program, and I was guiding a trip for them in Joshua Tree National Park. Um, so I, I... Was it a climbing trip? It was a... Yes, it was a climbing trip. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the course... So that so that program it is an academic course. The students get um, like two credit hours for learning how to rock climb, and um, 
you know, cover the technical skills as well as the social, emotional, group management, um, um, communication, leadership. Yeah, camp all craft, that, all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and we, you know, one of the one of the things that I always love teaching in that course is just like crag etiquette and like you know, like we're a group and this is how we interact with one another, but we're also in an ecosystem of other people out climbing. And sometimes we have good experiences with the other people at the crag, and sometimes we have less good experiences. And you know, we always get to come back to to, to camp and talk about like who do we want to be within the climbing community. And so that's always a, a fun added part of the, of the trip. That's just, you know, beyond the, like, this is how you belay and this is how you build anchors. And, um, yeah. Very cool. So you're in Joshua Tree National, National Park with a group of students. How many students were on this course? So there were seven students total and it was myself and, um, another instructor. All of those students were, they're all part of the same university. It's an academic course, they all were belay certified at the university's climbing gym. When I was there, I developed the top rope and lead climbing curriculum to model the AMGA's climbing wall instructor course. And the person who I was co-instructing with, I had trained to be an AMGA climbing wall instructor and so knew that he had provided that curriculum to these students. So um, it's kind of a cool program that like you're, I was going out and guiding a group of, of new climbers, but I, I knew that they already had a pretty substantial background in, in climbing skills. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a cool added component to, to the course. So we were already starting off on a pretty solid foundation. Mm-hmm. So there were sort of seven students, two instructors. Um, we were out there for 10 days. Myself and the, and my co-instructor arrived two days earlier than everybody else to, um, he had only climbed in Joshua tree once before. Um, I've led about, I think this was my fifth 10 day course out there. And so we spent two days so I could kind of like show him the approaches and show like this site is a good top roofing site. Right. Yeah, Claiming exactly. your camping spot for your seven students. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Flaking the rope. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. All that, all the kind of like um, figuring out where to go, how to get there, picking our day one spots. And, you know, when if folks are feeling strong, we can go here. If folks need something where half the group needs something hard and half the group needs something easy, we can go there. But just a good, like, two days of orientation for the site. What time of year? When was this? What was? Oh, this was, sorry. Yeah, this was January. So me and my co-instructor arrived January 1st, and then the students arrived on the third or fourth. Our first day of climbing was the fourth. January um, of, of 2024, of this yes. year? Yes. Okay. Yep, yep, this year. Fresh. Yep. Fresh, okay. yes. Okay. Yes. Um, just a, just over a month out from, from the course. Um, so the second day of the course is when I um, I sustained my injury. Uh, the first day... That's some serious foreshadowing, by the way. I know. <laughs> We don't know um, why you have an injury. We didn't even know uh, yes. you had an injury, but now yes. we do. And now exactly. we're all wondering, hmm, I better stay <laughs> tuned to the end of this podcast to hear why Devin has an injury. <laughs> yeah. That's my storytelling uh, um, um, proficiency coming out there. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. So so on day one, you know, like I I know the that that my co-instructor shared like these are this is the student population. It's a mixture of folks that have climbed outside or haven't climbed outside, but they've all been through the top roping course 
and some of them have been through the lead climbing course. And we agreed that regardless of that, I haven't met them. So day one is just going to be a day to like make sure that we all have the foundational skills ironed out and, you know, kind of like redo the belay test, even though they've all been belay tested and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just kind of like orient them. The way that I always think about it is like, even if fe- folks have climbed before, if they're coming on a 10 day trip, it's like they've just landed in the land of Oz <laughs> and they're just mm-hmm. like wide eyed and like, whoa, we're in Joshua Tree National Park. This is wild. And so everyone needs a refresher. Um, I needed to see that they could belay. Um, so day one was was casual and fun. We dropped a bunch of top ropes at one of the more popular top roping sites, Trash Can Rock, which doesn't make it sound fun, but it's actually a pretty good beginner spot. Um, I think we got like eight routes in, in just in the morning. Um, and everyone got on all of them, um, from like five, two to five, 10 broke for lunch. And then our second, the second half of the day, we did some lead climbing where me and my instructor were leading and had the folks who had done a lead climbing course on campus. Um, you know, we ran through all the, the skills again, um, for lead, the differences between lead belaying and top rope belaying, made sure that those that were providing the belays could give out slack, take in slack, how much slack they should be giving, um, what their job is, what will happen, what would happen if the leader fell, pointing out all the gear placements. And so our, our, the afternoon was really focused on what the, mo- the majority of the trip would look like. Um, which is the the instructors leading to set up the climbs. Ultimately, like there there is a lot of good top roping in Joshua Tree where you can walk to set up the anchors, but only doing that really limits the amount of terrain you can cover. And the purpose of the course is to allow students to progress into mm-hmm. rock climbing and kind of like see the full scope. So, mm-hmm. we, um, um, yeah, the goal is to get into lead following and and building anchors and that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. so the second half of the day, we went to Echo T um, and Echo Cove and had a um, some like two or three more routes, a little bit harder, and and all of the students were belaying, um, and all went smoothly. All was great. So yeah, things were. I mean, like day one with the students was awesome. We got like full day of climbing in, full value. Full value. Yeah. yeah, it was just, it was, it was super. Um, everyone's charged, everyone's stoked. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, day one in Joshua Tree, many folks had never climbed outside before ever. They're coming from the Northeast winter to sunny California. It's just like, ah, <laughs> amazing. So then we're at like debrief that night. We're talking about, you know, like tomorrow we're going to, we'll, we'll go to a different pace. Um, we'll probably split up with one guide and three students and one guide and four students. Um, we'll go to a sim, uh, uh, the same area, but wanted to know, you know, they, they were all looking for climbs that were a bit harder than we had done the, the, on day one. So we decided to go to the ice cream parlor. Is that what it's called? No, the dairy, sorry, the dairy queen, the dairy queen wall. Um, on day two, there's a lot of good options for easier crack climbs. My instructor and I were like, all right, goal number one for goal for day one was like, just like shake off the jitters of like, woo, we're in Joshua tree. Um, and then goal two is to kind of like train them on the different styles of, of climbing in Joshua tree. So there, there is some really good face climbing, but the bread and butter I feel like is slab climbing and crack climbing. 
in Joshua Tree. And so we're like, let's go do some easy crack climbing. We'll go do some easier slab climbing so that we can build on the progression there. And the Dairy Queen wall seemed like the perfect fit for easier crack climbing and more lead follows and, and that kind of thing. So that was our plan for day two. And then dun, 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 ominous. Uh, day two is the day that um, I broke my ankle. So we went to the, the Dairy Queen wall is a short approach from the car. It's about 300 meters to a boulder scramble up to the base. And then there's two sides of the Dairy Queen wall. There's Dairy Queen right, Dairy Queen left. They're separated by a small buttress. Um, if you needed to, you could kind of like yell from one side to the other, but you don't have line of sight. I was with three climbers on the left side, and my co-instructor was on the other side with, with the other four. We All three climbers that I was with were, when I was deciding who to, to ask for a belay, they shared that all three of them had taken the lead climbing course back on campus. Um, and so then I explained where we were going and asked who felt most comfortable uh, providing a belay. Well, I'll, just for the sake of, of anonymity, I'll say Bill, made up name, Bill offered to belay. And I clarified again with Bill what we expect from a lead belay, what to expect from me as a climber, the communications that I'll be giving him. If I were to fall, what would happen? Um, I asked him to demonstrate feeding out slack, taking in slack, and catching a fall before heading up. The first climb we set up was Leap Year Flake. It's a 5'7", about 100 feet, really awesome climb. So after uh, reassessing that, uh, he felt confident and comfortable belaying with the grigri, um, feeding out, taking in slack. I set off, set up the climb, no problems, came down. All three students were, were super excited. After I came down, I think Bill climbed one, and then another student was starting to climb when we started talking about, all right, what, what route should we set up next? And that's the, the next route, Adam's family. So five nine, about also about a hundred feet, just to the right of Leap Year Flake, um, is the route that I broke my ankle on. So I've been kind of like going over and over, like what was it that led to me breaking my ankle? And so I have a very detailed ex explanation of the specific climb and what happened. So bear with me. Oh, I'm gonna bear. <laughs> um, so Adam's family is a five nine, and just to the right of it. I think the name is Lurch. It was a 5'8", and I was trying to decide, like, should I climb the 5'8", and then set up an anchor that can service both the 5'8 and the 5'9", or should I just climb the 5'9"? Uh, looking at the 5'8", it didn't look very appealing. The guidebook had it rated as not uh, as two stars instead of three stars. Kind of looked like there was a there was like a, a block leaning up against the wall that, like... Mm -hmm you know, maybe would interfere with the climb. So it just kind of like, it it looked less appealing. There was maybe a risk of falling at the crux and landing on a ledge. And I hadn't done either climb. So I was like, I might get to the top of that, uh, the top of the 5'8", realize that it's no good to set up an anchor for both that and the 5'9". And then we're just going to, mm -hmm. you know, maybe waste some time um, on, a, on a climb that doesn't look so, so like so much fun. So I decided to, to set up the 5'9". After climbing in Joshua Tree for two days, I was feeling really solid. Um, typically, my my on-site grade is is um, five ten A to ten B, and so five nine 
was oh, well, well within, within your ability yeah, level. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, cool. Like, like I'm not really nervous, but given that it was five nine and the first route we did that day, that day was a five seven, you know, I kind of like re-explained to Bill, like, all right, your job is to catch me if I fall. I'm more likely to fall on this one than the the previous one. So the same guy that belayed you on the first climb volunteered to belay you on the second climb. Correct. Yep. Yep. And we, you know, we were looking at the climb. The The base of the climb was a little bit sketchier than the first one. So we built a ground anchor and both he and I looked to, you know, I like, because it's a climbing course, I was just like thinking out loud, like, okay, cool. So my first piece of gear is going to be there, which means if I fall, you're going to be pulled in this direction. So yeah, let's put the ground anchor here so that you'll get pulled into the ground anchor instead of getting pulled away from it. And, and we'll make sure that, that when the system goes tight, you're in a position of comfort. So we had a, you know, just a, a longer conversation about what happens if I fall, but I already felt, you know, we were, we were building on the previous experience where, where he had demonstrated that he could belay properly. Uh, so I start up the climb. It's feeling great. Um, I get up to the crux. The name of the route is Adam's Family. Also, and then like in parentheses, also known as go left or go right. And so I get up to the crux and like that's in my head. I'm like, oh, yeah. Go left or go right. Do I go left or do I go right here? Um, and I start up going right and I'm like, ah, this feels more forced than it should be. I think I should probably go left. And it came back down and my foot slipped. I was about a foot or two above my cam, my last cam. So sorry, um, backing up a little bit. I, I had three pieces of gear in. I was about 50, 40 to 50 feet up. My last piece was a number one, a, a red uh, Camelot. And it was between my hips and my knees. And so I wasn't really concerned about falling also. So I was like, you know, if I were to like run out, the decision to go left or go right may have already passed. And I'm like, well, I'm already committed. But being that I was right above my my piece, I was like, well, mm-hmm. I'm just going to step down and and move over. I slipped and started falling and immediately remarked in my head like, wow, there's a lot of slack in the system. Um, and I could see kind of like a loop of slack coming in, like coming through the carabiner um, of my first piece of gear. I was like, whoa, going for a ride here. And then my foot must have hit a knob um, on the, the left side of the wall. Your left foot or your right foot? My left foot. Uh-huh. And there was no pain on impact, but like there was an, like immediately I knew and felt something internal that I had never felt before in my leg. <laughs> and I was like, that is broken. Um, so I finally, Bill does catch my fall and I'm hanging about 15 feet above the ground and you know, he's like, dude, are you okay? I'm like, no, I broke my ankle. I need you to lower me to the ground. He says, should I call the other instructor? And I say, no, not yet. (laughs) Yes, but not now. Please just focus on lowering me very slowly to the ground. And then from that point forward, we're we're kind of like in rescue mode, which is interesting for me. I've, I've been a part of rescues and evacuations, but it's always been for someone else. Not for your own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now it's me as the instructor needing to do a self-rescue and manage the, and the group dynamics yeah. and coach. Right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a big job. Um, it was, a, yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> um, but adrenaline is an amazing thing. Throughout this entire time, there was no pain. 
in my ankle. <laughs> I was like, like maybe it's just dislocated. There's no pain. <laughs> um, and was able to like very, very clearly and cognizantly coach my students through like, I need you, I need you to pull the rope on the other climb, but what about the anchor? Don't worry about the anchor. Just pull the rope. We're going to get everything down and, and everyone on the ground. I need everyone to come to where I am, bring all of our stuff over. The med kit is in my backpack. You know, so I'm kind of like coaching through um, everything to get everyone, everyone kind of like rallied around me so that we can start to, to move out to the car. The rescue went really well. My belayer, um, who, I'm, who I'm calling for now, Bill, had a certification in outdoor emergency care, which is, I think is the standard that ski patrollers have. It's kind of like an analogous to woofer. And so he started making a splint for my ankle. Fortunately, I could wiggle my toes. I could feel my toes. There was full capillary refill with my toes. So there was no no reason to like reset my foot or anything, um, which was, was very, very happy for that. Which my students were like, do we need it? Should we reset it? And I'm like, don't touch don't They're wanting to ankle. use the wilderness first responder skills. <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah, yeah. he's not got, yeah. doesn't have that capillary, capillary refill and he's yeah. has lost his sensory motor circulation. Let's get bend his, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, like nope, track no me into place. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, do not touch my ankle. Flip <laughs> this um, thing in yeah. place and yeah. back me to the car. Let's yeah, go. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, what, uh, do you think we should con- should we keep climbing? Like, no. Do you th- what do you think about tomorrow? I'm like, we're not there yet. <laughs> Let's just get down to the car. So we finally got, you know, all of our equipment. There was another party climbing next to us and they were super helpful. Um, they ended up cleaning gear from the route that I fell on and offered some words of encouragement. But, you know, getting getting down the boulder field was pretty easy. easy. Um, there's something about like, the three-dimensional nature of, of boulder scrambling where you can use all of your appendages. So I can like scooch on my butt and like balance with my hands. My students were really helpful at kind of like spotting me as I was sliding down some steeper boulders. And then really like the harder part was getting the 300 meters from the base of the boulder field to the car. I ended up just hobbling with a stick all the way back. There was There was some some suggestions of like carrying me or like building a litter. And I was personally not feeling very comfortable Mm -hmm. introducing any extra potential for me to fall. Um, (laughs) It's like, I don't really want to be carried right now. There, we did try like two people on either side and with me with my arms over their shoulders. Um, But it, there was a height difference or they felt uncomfortable being my students, whatever it was, um, it didn't really pan out. So I ended up just hobbling 300, 300 meters with a stick um, out to the car with them cheering me on. <laughs> um, it's pretty fun. Fun is the word that you would use, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, in, in some respects, yes. Uh, you know, like my ankle was not hurting me at that point. I had no clear sense of like what the trajectory was with my injury. Um, and so like, I was just like chatting with, with the students and, you know, cracking jokes and having as best a time as possible getting out to the car. You know, the adrenaline was still pumping at that point. So, <laughs> so this was day two of the trip. So then, yes, this was day two of a, of 10 days. It was a pretty big bummer for for everybody. Fortunately, the format of the trip and, you know, Joshua Tree is pretty versatile. So so there was still 
the opportunity for them to go out top roping with the other instructor. So we weren't like mm, game ender. We were like, ooh, how are we going to restructure this trip if Devin Devin can't can't be guiding? So I mean, after that, it's a little bit more like medical technical. You know, I went to the ER. They were super helpful. Reset my ankle. Suggested I see an orthopedic surgeon. I booked a flight to go home earlier than I should have or or intended to, and then got to the ER back here in Burlington. They gave me a, a diagnosis as a with a pylon fracture, which is really common in car accidents. Um, essentially, the the head of my fibia or tibia, where the talus kind of like rolls around in it, just like shattered into a million pieces. Yeah, I know. It sucked. <laughs> and and my surgeon was like, I mean, it's not the worst we see. The worst we see is when the talus goes like all the way into the tibia. But yeah, yours is pretty bad. <laughs> so two surgeries, four nights in the hospital, two plates and 13 screws. I'm now a month out from sur- my final surgery and I have a pretty good scar and I'm laid up on the couch. With a three and a half year old son. Yep. Uh, dog and partner. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, I mean, I can, I can, I can save this for the, the lessons learned component of, of your podcast, but there's something that I, f- I feel is like really interesting in the risk calculation of, of likelihood versus consequence. I've always known conceptually that the consequences are greater than just the injury. You know, there's the like, you're injured and that hurts. And you're going to be off your feet for a while. And I've known like, and then there's the financial component of paying for the hospital bills and you can't um, work. You can't go to work. Can't, can't go to work. And and bills don't stop. Yeah. And so this is my, this is my own personal first major injury. And so it's my own, my, I'm going through my own learning experience of like what the reality of that is. So like, I've known it conceptually, but like now I like actually know like, Oh, that's what it means to be off your feet for six months. It sucks. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> I mean, I'm only a month and a half in, and uh, I've made some really fun wooden models. Um, oh, look at you! <laughs> yeah, I made a I made a fire engine. Uh, my son loves it. Uh, it was a lot of uh, fun putting it together. <laughs> you kind of alluded to it that you have some lessons learned. What are what are those? Yeah, so so for me there's there's kind of like three components. One is the like guiding and like climbing guiding within the industry. There's this known wild card that is the student belay. Um and so like some organizations say that they're that the the um the guide will never be belayed by a student. That's why we always have two instructors. Um, and so there's no such thing as the student belay for a climbing instructor leading to set up a climb. That's an interesting idea because in, it's, in my world, you're, you're really limiting the progression of the student. And, and it takes away the, the power for them. Like you're not, you're not empowering them to, to feel confident in their skill set. But that's just my, that's what I subscribe to. Totally. Well, and I'll say like my, my own personal opinion is um, everyone learns to belay with an ATC mm-hmm. um, and yeah, they're going to belay me because this is what, this is rock climbing. Uh, there's a belayer and a climber and part of learning to rock climb is learning and understanding the responsibility that the belayer has and that it's, it's 
it's not a one person show. It's a team effort. Um, so yeah, I've been reflecting a lot on, on both of those things on like the student belay as a learning experience for the student and teaching belaying with an ATC. So I've always been, um, kind of an, uh, I mean, I'm not that old, so I can't say I'm an old curmudgeon, but I'm definitely a curmudgeon <laughs> when it comes to ATCs versus Grigories. I've always like found that, you know, when, regardless of what you, what we say with a, with a Grigory or, or an, an assisted braking device, that it's, it's not auto locking. It's just an assisted brake. When you're teaching a new climber, like, hey, this thing is not going to break for you. You still have to hold the brake strand. And then the top rope climber falls and they look down and the device catches the fall. And like, yeah, they held the brake strand, but like they're not actually feeling the climber in their hand on the brake strand. They're feeling the device catch the fall. So regardless of what we say, like physically, they're learning that the device catches. And so I've always felt that teaching belaying with the Grigri kind of like breeds complacency in like, well, yeah, he says I have to pay attention, but like I got this backup on. But regardless of that, if Bill was belaying with an ATC and Bill is a new belayer, even though Bill has passed the belay test in the in the gym for top rope climbing, has demonstrated competency with lead belaying in with, with lead belaying. So like he's passed the test, uh, but he's still a new belayer. And things are different outside. You know, I worry that if Bill were belaying with an ATC... You might have hit the ground. I might have hit the ground. Right, exactly. Like, uh, at the, like ultimately, like, the Grigri that he was using did arrest my fall. Whether or not his hand was on the brake strand, I, I hope that it was. And I, you know, I'm pretty sure that it was, just based on knowing him as a belayer. But yeah, so so my my lesson learned here is... As someone who's professionally guiding, rock climbing has so many risks and there there is a factor of it's just a numbers game and the more you do it, the more likely you are to for the for the perfect confluence of of things to to happen. And if you're instructing, you're not just introducing that risk in your personal life but also your professional life. And so why add additional risk when you don't have to if there is this extra tool? assistive brake device that I can use to add an extra level of insurance to, to um, prevent an injury for myself while I'm working. So definitely, sorry, that was, I'm, I'm a little bit all over the place, but one lesson learned is my own personal for professional guiding. I will personally only now take a belay from a student using a Grigri after they've demonstrated proficiency using a Grigri to belay, even though it goes against my own personal philosophy on teaching belaying with an ATC. So that's one thing. The other two components are are like how this experience is like a perfect example for how I teach risk management in my courses. And so the two com- the two components of risk management are in the, in how I teach it are there's like how you measure risk as um, likelihood versus consequence. So like, what's the likelihood of, of an incident happening? And then what's the consequence of the incident happening? So that's like part one of risk management. And then part two is that incidents happen, regardless of their likelihood or consequence, they happen when subjective factors and objective factors combine. So like the cliff is there. If one were to fall off the cliff, 
it would be bad. And so like the cliff presents an objective hazard. It's my own personal human desire to climb the cliff that prevents a subjective hazard. So with this specific example, you know, there's a subjective hazard of, of me lead climbing. Um, I'm going to set up a route by lead climbing. There's always the chance of the lead climber slipping. And that happened. I, I slip on rock. That happens. There's the objective hazards with, with a specific climb. Some climbs are overhanging. And so there's no chance that you're going to catch your foot on a knob and break your ankle. But this climb happened to have the objective hazard of a knob sticking out on the left side. And then there's the other subjective hazard of belayers. You know, even the most um, proficient belayers sometimes get distracted. You know, the sun catches your eye and then you look down and you're like, ah, that's too much slack in the system. A dog's barking and you turn away and look at the dog for a second. Right, right. So even in, a, in an ideal situation, we're humans and, and we can get distracted. And so even if Bill was doing a 99% proficient job at belaying the entire time, in the exact moment that I fell, there was too much slack in the system and I fell further than I had to. So you have like three things. Sorry, and I'll back up. I've been guiding for, for 15 years and I've been taking student belays on ATCs for 15 years. And I've taken much bigger falls because of too much slack in the system because it's a new belayer and, I've never, and I haven't gotten injured. This is like my first injury in 20 years. So, and this is a conversation that I had with Bill. I was like, look, Bill, this is not your fault. Um, this is a confluence of factors. We all have agency in it. There is certainly something that you could have done differently, but I don't want you to hold this shame on your shoulders for the rest of your life that you broke my ankle because you didn't break my ankle. Um, that was nice to hold space for that conversation with Bill. Yeah. And it was, we actually had a really good conversation. You know, I think first, and I've had this conversation with family and they're like, like, so he got an F, right? Like, how do you not hate Bill? And I'm like, well, I mean, like, it's not like my buddy who dropped me rock climbing. Like, this is my student who, this is, it was his second day ever rock climbing outside, ever belaying outside. And so, like, it's different. Um, and so it's actually, I, and I was chatting with, with my colleague who's also a climbing guide. Um, it's hard to debrief with folks who aren't outdoor instructors because, like, you know, my parents are like, see, told you rock climbing was dangerous. I'm like, ah, people break their ankles playing soccer. People break their ankles falling down the stairs. People break their ankles raking the leaves. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, like... Probably more often. Right, right. <laughs> I'm like, I've been climbing for 20 years, and this is the first time I've ever had to go to the hospital. And I actually, like, I crunched the numbers, and I was like, of all of the routes I've climbed, 0.13% of the routes caused me to go to the hospital. <laughs> I'm like, those are good odds. <laughs> um, yep. Anyways, I, I, got off, I got off track. I was talking about all of the different factors, the, the subjective and objective hazards that, that all at one time came together and, and led to the incident. A perfect storm. The perfect storm of me breaking my ankle. And so like, do, cli do lead climbers slip when they're climbing? Yes. Does it always cause an injury? No. And, you know, and, I, and I shared with, with Bill, you know, sometimes lead climbers, they run it out because they're feeling bold. And that's a hazard. And sometimes it ends in a bigger fall and sometimes it doesn't. In this specific instance, I felt like I was climbing really safely. Um, I chose a route that didn't have any obvious features to break my ankle on. <laughs> 
which now seems ironic. <laughs> and it was well protected. Um, I was I had a really solid piece of gear uh, before I fell, and so like of all the climbs that I've of the pitches that I've climbed, like it felt like a fairly safe climb. But anyway, so subjective factor, I slipped. Objective factor, there was a knob on the on the the climb that my foot could hit, and then subjective factor. For one reason or another, there was too much slack um, in the belay. And so those three things combined led to a broken ankle. So, I mean, I think what was interesting, you know, when I first spoke with Bill, we had a pretty frank conversation about the shared agency of belayer and climber. And I think at, at first, Bill, as my student, didn't fully recognize, like, you know, with a student-teacher relationship, like, the guide's responsible. And so I think that's how we first viewed the situation of like, well, I mean, like you're the guide and you got hurt. Like, it's not really my fault. Um, mm, that's interesting perspective. Yeah. And, and it, like, I can totally understand, I can understand that perspective. And I share, I was like, I understand. And this is where we're at. Like you said on belay. And what that means is you're going to catch me if I fall. And I know from, the previous climb and the previous day that you pay attention when you're belaying because I saw you do that. And there are many things that can cause an incident. And really the one thing that I see that could have been actively avoided is on the belay end, uh, which is too much slack in the system. So, and I told him, I was like, Bill, it's not your fault. I don't blame you for my broken ankle, but you do have agency in the outcome of this incident. And I was really thankful for his maturity in having that conversation openly with the rest of the group. Cause I also shared with him, I'm like, look, man, like this is a climbing course. And one of the lead instructors just broke their ankle. It's pretty important that we debrief this whole experience with everyone on the course. Um, but I want to make sure that you feel good about what we're discussing and that you have agency in processing this with the group. So if you want me to share everything that I just shared with you, I'll do that. If you want me to share my piece and then open the floor for you, we can do that. But I was really, I was, I was really grateful for his maturity and in, in agreeing that it's something that we had to talk about as a whole group. And for me to share my open, frank, honest assessment of what what could have gone differently and how things can 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 uh, transpire. I think debriefing is is massively important to give everyone space to see each person's perspective um, and honor that and um, not shame and not judge because that's how we can learn from other people's mistakes. You know, totally. And that was you know one of my one of my fears going in was like, man, I hope everyone on this course isn't like scared of climbing now. <laughs> right. And I'm like, yeah. like, which does happen though. Totally. And I'm like, if you were scared of climbing, I would understand you just saw someone break their ankle. Um, yeah. I mean, I've interviewed people on this show who have dropped other folks and have told me directly, like, I will never, ever, ever belay somebody again because they hold that guilt and they will not forget themselves. And that's, that's a bummer. Yeah, you know, totally. So totally, you can't you, you can't force anybody. So yeah, yeah, no, and I I understand I I understand that sentiment, and and it's what's been interesting is sharing this story with other people. I've been learning more stories that I just like I like I didn't know. Someone shared that um, their dad had a pretty serious accident, and I was like, 
what? I've known you for years, and I had no idea that this hap- that 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 was part of your life. Um, but in in sharing accidents and how they happen, and and deep yeah debriefing with with friends, and you know it's uh it's amazing the things that you learn when you're on a different playing field. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think like folks are more comfortable sharing their own mistakes when they see that you have also gotten injured or, or gotten hurt or had a mistake. It's like, Oh yeah, that happened to me too. I don't feel so dumb. Right. I don't feel so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, and that's, that's what I'm trying to help change with this culture of how we shame and blame each other and ourselves for mistakes that we or others make um, when nobody is invincible. One of the things that I've been working hard on with the leadership training course that I run is trying to explicitly share my own mistakes with my students. And and this one, like this incident specifically, I think is really valuable in that like there's part of it that I think is easy to say, easy to look at an incident like this and be like, oh, well, as the climbing guide, he should have had his belayer with a backup belayer. Or he should have triple checked that he knew how much slack to give out. Or wasn't there a ground anchor? There was a ground anchor. Uh, there was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like there's, there's all these things that we can kind of like pick apart and say, that's why that person got hurt and point to some flaw or some mistake or something that they missed as if, as if you would have done better in that situation. Right. And, and the reality is like, we're all human. And like none of us are robots. And even when we're operating at a hundred percent, we miss something. And so like, and like the reason we have the, the reason our climbing systems are so redundant, the reason we have, you know, when, when I, when I build a climbing anchor, it's minimum three pieces. But when I teach top rope anchor building to new climbers, I I'm like, you want two legs. Each leg has three pieces, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> Cause you're like, I just want that insurance policy of like, like you double, triple check that cam and that cam and that cam. And, but did you double, triple check that one? Cause even when we're trying our, our hardest and we've, we've had an extra cup of coffee, we miss something. And so there's always some kind of way that we've trained ourselves to back ourselves up. Cause we know that we're human and we're going to make a mistake. Um, and for me, it's been hard to not like when I communicate to this to folks, like I'm not bragging about myself. <laughs> I'm not bragging about how many boxes I can tick when I'm out climbing as a safe climbing guide. I'm just trying to articulate like these are all of the boxes that I ticked for risk management, and still this happens. And still, yeah. And and it's like like this just happens sometimes. Um, and so like when it happens to you, don't feel shame. Don't feel guilt. Try not to. Like, or not don't, right? That's a, that's a shame and guilt are, are, are normal human emotions and feelings. Like, but when you feel that sense of shame and guilt, just remind yourself that it's like, these are the things that happen. Like rock climbing is dangerous. This is what we mean when we say rock climbing is dangerous. We mean that there are unmitigatable risks that if we were to take them out, it wouldn't be rock climbing anymore. And like the reason we find value in the sport is because it looks a specific way. And if we were to take out this risk, that risk, this risk, it would no longer be rock climbing. It would be riding the auto belay up the wall (laughs) at the climbing gym. (laughs) Um, 
and that's not what we're trying to do. And like, sure, I'm sure that will that that may become part of the industry at some point, and people will have fun doing it. <laughs> um, but it's uh, that's not why we do it. That's not why we do it. Yeah, it's not why I do it. And and I think it's it's definitely hard to articulate to folks like my parents who don't rock climb. They're like, it's not that the reason that the reason that I rock climb isn't because it's risky, um, and there's part of what is part of what's appealing about rock climbing is one of the things that makes it risky. And that's like, there's that element of unknown. There's the element of, can I do this? Um, it's possible that, that I'll fall and break my ankle. Um, and, and there's like developing the skill to meet that, that challenge and uncertainty is kind of like what brings the joy When talking about the value of allowing student blaze for instructors, Devin says that he's so committed to student learning that he's willing to break his ankle for them. Thanks, Devin, for sharing his story, and thank you for listening to my podcast. Hey, and don't forget that I have a YouTube channel now. Head on over to YouTube, search the Sharp Bend Podcast, and make sure to like and subscribe. Thank you to Rocky Talkies and the American Alpine Institute for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you to the American Alpine Club for believing in my podcast mission. Can't get enough climbing stories? The American Alpine Club podcast is your guide to the climbing community, exploring the many, many ways that we define climbing and the ways that climbing defines us. In recent episodes, the AAC pod interviewed a Yosemite climbing ranger on climbing ethics, talked to the woman who set the fastest known time on the Rainier Infinity Loop, and did a deep dive with search and rescue volunteers on their most harrowing climbing rescues. You can find episodes like this and more on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcast. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.